Uh, well, please, uh, this morning you can follow along on the screens as I read our scripture on which our sermon is based this morning. Uh, friends, these words are utterly true and they are given to us in love. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in verse 15, and the, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Matthew 6, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In our final verse, 1 Corinthians 10. So whether, you, uh, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we come uh, as your church uh, to, to be under your word, to, to surrender our wills to your will. And so would you, would you meet us this morning as best as we're able to give by faith to you in this moment. Uh, forgive the preacher, he is a sinner. But may we see Jesus because grace changes everything. It's in his name we do pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, well, if you are uh, new with us today, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Orangewood, and I am really glad that you are here uh, today. We have been in a sermon series called We Are Orangewood, and we have been looking at our mission and our values that will guide us as a church as we move forward into the next chapter and season of our great church. And uh, we've been sharing about that with you over these past few weeks, and if you've uh, you call Orangewood home, I'd encourage you to go back and listen if you might have missed a message. But we shared with you our new mission statement. Hopefully you're starting to get a few of those words, but that mission statement is, we exist inviting every person into the life-changing story of Jesus. That, that's what, who we are, that's why we are here as a church, to invite every person into the life-changing story of Jesus. And last week, uh, Pastor Joe talked about our value, neighbors near and far, such a, a great value that has been embedded into our Orangewood culture for so long. And today I have the privilege to talk about our next value, 168 living, 168 living. We live in such a way that our faith is not simply on display for an hour each Sunday, but for all 168 hours each week. We were created to glorify God and enjoy him and we can do this in our work, rest, and play. I love this value that our team came up with because it highlights the heart and vision of our church and who we want to be. That, uh, the, the type of church, the, the type of people uh, that we want to be in living out this kind of life and this opportunity that we have every moment, every day to, to join God uh, where he is already at work in 
in our lives. And, and I think in many ways, this is one of the main themes that you'll see through the Bible, that, that God's kingdom from the very beginning would come in greater and fuller reality into our broken world through his kingdom of what Jesus has done, what Jesus has accomplished, and which makes it a sure hope that all things will be made right one day in him. We see this theme in the kingdom at the very beginning of the Bible. This is what we read in Genesis 2. Uh, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This, this right here is the first instance of culture in the Bible. Culture is a gardening term. It, it means to, to tend, to, to, to take care of, to nurture, to cultivate. If you've, if you've ever had a garden in your life, you, you know it takes many, many hours to cultivate that thing. Uh, that's why I don't do it. But God asked Adam to be part of bringing God's culture and greater and fuller reality into our world. But sadly, the story of Adam is the story of our lives. Um, uh, your work that you're involved with right now, you are asking, how does this possibly connect it all to any sense of purpose? Uh, you, you, you find yourself asking, what, what am I doing with my life? Other times you're like Adam um, who had forgotten that the, the goal was to cultivate God's kingdom and we find ourselves slowly drifting into, because we've been formed and, and cultured by our current state and society uh, to live for our own kingdoms, uh, we, we ask the questions, well, how much money am I going to make in 10 years? How, what kind of job am I going to be promoted to in 10 years? All those questions that you may have of upward mobility. We live with what David Brooks calls resume virtues instead of eulogy virtues. Uh, we, we live as, as work is about accomplishments and accolades rather than work is my contribution I give to others. And maybe, maybe you're here, you just, you just have lived uninformed of how God wants to use all 168 hours of your week with kingdom-laden opportunities that you are invited to step into every moment of every day. And now please don't hear me when I say that as a rebuke to you. If anything, it's a rebuke to pastors like myself and other church leaders. We have not served you well and how to see your whole life as this invitation from God to join him in bringing his kingdom. I heard the story one time about Tim, just making sure we're clear. Tim is not part of our church in case you're trying to already, what, what Tim is Tyler talking about? Not part of our church. You don't know him. Tim was a very successful businessman. He was a follower of Jesus, uh, but he had struggles of how his faith on Sunday was preparing him for what he experienced on Monday when he stepped into the office for that week. And he said this, I wake up Monday morning and I have, put, I have to put on my armor because the values I face in my workplace are so different from the values I hear about on Sunday. Uh, does anyone resonate that? Uh, what does my singleness have to do with God? What, do, what does doing the laundry have to do with God's kingdom? How, how could there be 168 living when it comes to matching the clean socks? Anyone been there? Matching the clean socks. What does 168 living have to do with that? Do you feel Tim's story in your own story? How do I step into this life with God that is right here? right here. 
So let's dive in. Much needed topic in our church today. Uh, this invitation to 168 living. Three things we must see. First, the issues that we have with 168 living. Second, the life we are all looking for. And finally, the reason you can have it. So let's look at this. The issues with 168 living. And what we find, there are many different hindrances culturally and personally to this life with God in our day-to-day life. The first is that we've inherited a compartmentalized faith. Uh, N.T. Wright is a scholar of the New Testament. He's brilliant. He's written a lot on uh, what faith and culture look like and how those intersect. And uh, he was writing about how this compartmentalization has happened in our culture. And Wright is British, and he says the way, the way that compartmentalization happened in Europe is they took secular ideology in full sail. So religion just died in Europe. But here in America, he says, uh, it's a different story. In America, we can still have our faith, a viable expression of it, though I would argue it is decreasing and devalued in our culture. Um, He says, you can still have it. You can have it on Sunday. But Wright says, it's only a Sunday ritual rather than informing all areas of our lives. And this is what he wrote in his book, Simply Christian. Things are more complicated in North America than Europe. It has been axiomatic in North America that religion and spirituality should stay in their proper place. In other words, well away from the rest of real life. In college, I had a New Testament professor that I took. This was a public university. So if you've ever taken a, a public university religion class, you know uh, what I experienced. I, I walk into class for the first day. Uh, it was uh, the study of New Testament. The, we sat down. The professor walks in. The first thing he said was, uh, if you are here today and you are a person of faith, I want you to know this class is not about your faith. It, this is class is, is the study of ancient texts. And I remember these words like they were yesterday. If you are here and you are a person of faith, I'm going to actually ask you to leave your faith outside the door before you walk in every day. And this is the, the reality of the culture that we live in. We, we have this compartmentalized faith. But we also have these compartmentalized roles. What do I mean by that? Well, I'll bear the blame because of I'm a pastor, and this is a problem that we've had. In many ways, the church has not helped you in this um, and for you to see your kingdom potential. But there was a division created at some point. I don't know when it was. There was a division created. If you really loved God, if you really loved Jesus, you would leave behind everything you know, everyone you love, and you will go overseas as a missionary to bring the gospel and good news near Now, please hear me. There are some of you in this room that God is calling you to do that. And you need to hear that call and receive that invitation. But but what would happen is you you would hear that the way it's discussed is it it may sound if missionary, if you go to the ends of the earth, if if you feel God is calling you to go there, then those are the people that God uses the most. Those are the people that God loves the most. Now, maybe you love Jesus. Uh, Maybe you want people to know him, but you can't live in a far country. I mean, they don't have Chick-fil-A there. And so what does God call you to do? Well, he calls you to be a pastor at a church in Maitland, Florida. God loves you, not like those missionaries, but he loves you. But maybe you're here, maybe you're not a missionary, maybe not your pastor. And finally, there's everyone else. Maybe that's you. Not a missionary, not a pastor. And sadly, the church has told you, well, come on Sunday, give, go do what you do through most of the week, do that, 
then come on Sunday, give, go do what you do every week with your time and energy, and then come on Sunday, and it's just this loop over and over. Now, giving should be an expression of our lives if we're Christians. I'm not saying that, but this is not the formula God has laid out in the Bible for you to receive. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther was once approached by this man who was enthusiastic. He had just come to faith in Jesus, a really beautiful moment. Um, and this man now is asking Martin Luther, what should I do with my life? Uh, he, he was essentially asking, uh, should I become a pastor? Should, should I go um, serve in a monastery, be a monk? Um, what, what, what am I called to do from here? What's, what, and then uh, Luther's response to him was, what is your work now? And the man said, oh, I'm a shoemaker. That's what I do now. And the, and the cobbler heard the, the craziest answer he thought he would hear from Martin Luther. This is what he said. Luther, then make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. I remember meeting a man from my previous church I served at um, in Michigan. Um, he wanted to take me to lunch. He had just retired uh, from his job. Very successful businessman up in Michigan. And since retiring, he had been reading some, some good books on faith and work and the implications of that. And he wanted to take me to, to, to lunch to make sure I wasn't going to blow it in talking to other business leaders and, and what that means for their life, of their faith and their work. And we sat down for lunch, and with tears in his eyes, he said this, Tyler, I worked my whole career. I was successful. I made a lot of money. I thought it was all about being a good person and tithing to the church, when in reality, God was already at work in my office, and I never joined him there. I regret it every day. Uh, friends, I am sorry. We, as pastors, have let you down into this invitation you're being invited into by God to see where he is at work, to take up the, the spiritual practice of holy noticing. Where, where is God already at work in my day-to-day -day life? Seeing your workplace or your school as a prayerful conversation throughout your day with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Praying for wisdom before you go into a meeting or into a class. Asking God to be with you through a really difficult conversation coming up that day. Surrendering our wills to him moment by moment. Now, if there's any church that I can think of who has fought for this view, it has been Orangewood Church. In fact, uh, founding pastor Chuck Green launched with this mission, every member a minister, every member a missionary. You may know that line if you've been here a long time. And in many ways, Chuck was ahead of his time in that kind of thinking. And our hope is really as a church to regain that value, to be that kind of church for our beautiful city of Orlando. Compartmentalized faith, compartmentalized roles, and finally, compartmentalized formation. Coming out of the Enlightenment, we began to take on a view that formation happens as a church primarily through intellectual means, through education. And in a lot of ways, that's actually not a bad thing. It's a great thing. But we began to see that we are primarily thinking beings. It's all about what gets in our head. But uh, James K.A. Smith wrote a book recently. He said, no, we're not primarily thinking beings. We are primarily loving beings. What we're primarily worshiping beings. Like, it's not what you know. You are what you love. And we studied that book last year as a Sunday study. And I heard a story one time about a freshman high school girl. Uh, she had come to meet with the pastor. Uh, I mean, it uh, doesn't happen very often. Came to meet with pastor. She was, she was in her freshman year in high school. You know, that freshman year, it's a hard, brutal year. 
And she came and she made this statement. I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but why won't any high school boys even look at me? Uh, do you hear it? Uh, the, the gospel was in her head, but high school boys had her heart. You see, Jesus was on audio, but boys with 10% body fat They were on video. And our culture is forming us to, you know, make no mistake about it. Our culture is forming us moment by moment. And it is pleading with you to take something deeper into your heart other than Jesus. There's fascinating research happening right now uh, in the world of neuroscience, uh, the state of the brain. And speaks to and validates much that we have studied of ancient spiritual practices, uh, Christian spiritual practices of formation. Neuroscientists have now validated that you cannot stop thinking about something when someone has told you to stop thinking about it. Um, you can thank Hebb's Law and neuroplasticity for that. So, for instance, if I said to you this morning, stop thinking about purple elephants. Stop it. Like right now, stop thinking about purple elephants. You actually it becomes harder because your brain ingrains it even more in your mind with greater clarity, purple elephants. How do you stop? Well, you need what the Apostle Paul called the transformation of the mind. What the Scottish minister Thomas Chalmers called a better affection, something that you take into your heart. And in those moments when we have the wrong thoughts, ideas, and images, berating us rather than saying to ourselves, stop it, Tyler, just stop it, Tyler, stop it, Tyler. We can receive a better affection of Jesus into our hearts to walk with him. This is how the apostle Paul said it. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellency, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Compartmentalized faith, compartmentalized roles, compartmentalized formation. These are the reasons why we struggle with 168 living culturally. And these are the reasons why we struggle with 168 living personally. But the question this morning is, what if God had a better reality for your life? Uh, what, what, if, what if God was inviting you into life with him in a more beautiful and peaceful way? What if there was actually the life we were all looking for. That's the second thing we need to see. Jesus of Nazareth was standing on a hillside in the first century overlooking the Sea of Galilee, which really the sea is a very generous term. It's more like a lake, maybe a pond, a very small body of water. But he's, he's overlooking this Sea of Galilee and his disciples have been following him and they want the life that they see in this rabbi. They want that kind of life. And, and so they ask him, how, how, how do we pray? And this is what he said. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, the first thing we are invited into is a better heaven, a better heaven. Uh, we see in our passage, heaven is not primarily where we are going to go when we die. That's true, let's not mistake that. But what we see in the Bible is that heaven is primarily not where we are going, but where heaven is coming, to earth, to earth. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. 
You see, most people, when we think in terms of the Bible, we think in terms of heaven and hell. And those, those are true realities. I don't want to make mistake that. Um, those are true realities. But the Bible is not actually primarily concerned with heaven and hell. A fun fact, just a fun fact. Did you know that the phrase heaven and hell actually never shows up in the Bible together? Never shows up together, heaven and hell, though we talk about it that way. Now, those realities are true. Heaven's true. Hell is true. Those are realities. Let's not mistake that, but they don't show up together. There's actually two other words always showing up together. One that the Bible is most concerned with, which is heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. God will one day set all things right to this broken world. He will bring his justice. He will wipe away every tear. He will redo the wallpaper of this world. If you're a kid under 20, wallpaper was this thing people used to do and put on their house if you didn't know what that. From Genesis to Revelation, we have been longing for God's kingdom to break into this broken world and remake all things. You see, for most of us, for most of us, the idea we have of heaven, it is, is like it's really, really far away. Like, like heaven's like really far out there, like just past Pensacola. I mean, it's just way out there, way out there. But what we see is that heaven in the Bible is right here. It's right here uh, because God is here. There's actually too many passages to spell this out to look at all of them. Genesis 21, 22, 28, Exodus 20, 1 Samuel 7 to name a few. And what do we see? Well, look at Genesis 22. This is what it says. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and he said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Here I am. The angel of the Lord is Jesus in the Old Testament and he calls to Abraham and it tells us he, he, he calls to him from heaven. And you can tell heaven is close. It's not on the other side of Pensacola, friends. Heaven's, heaven's right there because he responds, here, here am I. In Genesis 28, Jacob goes to sleep. It tells us in a certain place. It doesn't have a name. It's, it's in the middle of nowhere uh, where he goes to sleep. Uh, but God calls to him from heaven and listen to Jacob's response when he wakes up. It says this. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. I did not know it. And he was afraid. He said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Jacob named that certain place Bethel, which means the house of God. The house of God is right here. Friends, there is a better heaven, which reminds us this world is packed with the presence of God. Frank Laubach was a missionary to the Moro people in the Philippians, and uh, he actually gave us a wonderful spiritual practice called the game with minutes. And in that practice, uh, the, the, it's really a gracious response to say, how often can I throughout my day call God to my mind? Uh, could I do it every minute? And, and Frank, he, he worked through that practice. What, what would it look like for me to call God to my mind every, every minute? And so uh, he, he lived out this little practice by grace to call to God. Uh, just like um, Jacob, surely God is in this place and I did not know it. And, and, and listen to his life. He said this, God is everywhere around us and in us if we will only open our eyes. All the world is beautiful if we have the eyes to see the beauty for the world is packed with God. 
Where are the places in your life you have been seeing it as an unnamed place in the middle of nowhere, but in reality, it is a Bethel? Where are the places you've written off that there's nothing here, uh, there's nothing to be seen here, it's in the middle of nowhere? It could be your work. You absolutely hate your job. You hate it. Or you have just been numbed into some sort of low-grade apathy to just make it through the day. You've been seeing it as a place in the middle of nowhere, but it isn't actually a Bethel. It could be your marriage. God's inviting you to see that he is there no matter what you're facing. It could be your singleness this morning. You were hoping for something more by now. Definitely feels like you were in the middle of nowhere. Definitely feels like God's not up to anything, but it is actually a better heaven right there. For all those facing a medical issue, for all those facing a family issue, a relationship issue, for all those struggling to find purpose in their life, for all those overwhelmed, wearied, and burdened, or just plain beat up by life, God wants you to see there is a better heaven, and it's not on the other side of Pensacola, and it's not even on the other side of Acala. It's right here. It's right here with God. If you receive that invitation that is breaking into our world through Jesus. Dallas Willard called this the God-bathed world. And I love the way he talks about this, that there is a better heaven. He says this, with this magnificent God positioned among us, Jesus brings the assurance that our universe is a perfectly safe place for us to be. That's good news during COVID. That's good news for whatever issue you're facing this morning. Whatever job feels like a dead end. What marriage feels like it's not going anywhere. God says there's a better heaven. And right here with God is a perfectly safe place to be. Friends, there's a better heaven, but there's also a better glory. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians. He says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Uh, This word for glory in the ancient world was a monetary term. Um, uh, When people would go to the market, things would be weighed to see what they were actually worth. So uh, this word glory in Hebrew is the word kavod, and it could actually be translated weight or heaviness uh, to speak to how something has glory. And I think it gets to one of the primary questions that we are asking as people who've lived. Every culture, every society, they, they've, they've asked four basic questions throughout history. And one of those questions is, what is the good life? What is the good life? And every culture and civilization has tried to answer that. What has the, what has the weight in my life that puts all other things in its proper place? Um, we're, we're looking for the good, the good life. We're searching for something to give us the good life. That Our lives are filled with this. There's, there's something that has to have supreme weight in, in our lives. And you can tell what is the glory in your life by how it fills your emotions, um, how it fills your thought life, how, how, how it fills your worries. That Whatever that is, that, that's where you're looking for glory. Whatever has the weight in your life that you're looking to, that's, that's what you're looking to for the good life. And, and it can be anything for you. Every, everyone's looking to something. Once I get to this place in my career, then, then everything will be okay. Once I get to this place in our relationship, then, then everything will be fine. Once, once I get past this hurdle in my life, then I won't have to worry about anything anymore. There's something for us that we keep coming back to. 
uh, there's an ancient Puritan prayer that I think really gets at this and applies this to our lives. And I love this line from the prayer. It says this, be happy in God, O my heart, and in nothing but him. For whatever a person trusts in, from that he expects happiness. I love that line. Whatever, whatever I'm trusting in, that is what I am looking to for satisfaction. That's what I'm looking to, to give me the good life, to, to give me happiness. Do you see it? What, whatever we have put our trust in, whatever has our glory, that we will expect from it our happiness. And so friends this morning, what have you put your glory in? What, what, what has the weight in your life? And you know what it is. You, you know what it is, but there's a better glory. Uh, if you've put your ultimate trust in your career, expecting that to fulfill you, to give you happiness, um, you're, you're gonna live crushed by the burden of your performance. A crushed by the burden of, I, I can never fail at anything to keep everyone's happiness. If, if your ultimate trust is um, in your kids or in your spouse, um, your, your, your family will be crushed by the weight of unrelenting and unrealistic expectations that we put on them. If I, if I put my ultimate trust in no longer being single, I will find out quite quickly that Mr. or Mrs. Wright has a lot of wrongs. And you, and, you, and you see it in the relationship that, that the, the phone conversations that existed in those very early days with that significant other, they, they, they went something like this. No, you hang up first. No, 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 no. You hang up first. I'm going to miss you, but I don't want to hang up because I'll miss you. No, you hang up. I love you too much to hang up. And then the relationship happens. You get married. You have a few kids. Hey, I'm going to go now. Okay, good. Bye. I'll see you later. Click. I hope that's not just my marriage. <laughs> what has your glory? What has, what has your glory? What, what has the weight in your life that you're looking to for happiness? You're expecting it to deliver and it never will. The Apostle Paul says there is a life lived for the glory of God in all areas. That is the true life you are all, we are all looking for. That is the good life. That is the life that will satisfy you like nothing else will. The presence of God with me throughout all of my days, through my work, playing golf, throwing my clubs while playing golf, enjoying a great meal with friends with absolutely nothing to prove, enjoying one-on-one -on -one time with my kids. There is a constant relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we are invited into moment by moment throughout our day, enjoying his presence with you, allowing the weight of your life to find the happiness and in the one who can give it. Do you want that this morning? Well, of course you do, because that's all of us. We're all looking for it in a thousand other places, asking God to give it to us. There's a better glory right here with God, right here with God. But the question you may have this morning is how can we possibly have this kind of life? I mean, how can we have this kind of life, presence with God, if we're honest, we haven't acknowledged him through much of our days. We have carried on with our lives uh, as if he is actually on the other side of Pensacola. On our best days that he's in Ocala. How could we possibly believe that the constant friendship with God is available to me when I have put my ultimate trust in so many other things looking to satisfy me, pouring myself out, expecting them to make me happy, 
and they don't deliver. And guess what I do? I show up once again, expecting them to make me happy and they never do. And guess what I do? I show up once again, expecting them to make me happy and they never do. How can we possibly have this a presence to be available to us 168 living with how I have lived? Well, there's a third thing we need to see. The reason you can have it. The reason you can have it. How can we possibly have this kind of life we're all searching for? If we're honest, we've carried on with life without much awareness of trying to bring God's kingdom here. How can we possibly have this constant presence of God right here when we haven't even noticed that this is in fact a Bethel? Well, the reason we can have this kind of 168 life actually has nothing to do with you at all. But heaven comes into our passage about Bethel. It tells us with Jacob and it comes by way of a ladder. Now, you may be wondering, okay, did you just say a ladder? One of the greatest questions of all history and civilization is what is the good life? And you're going to tell me, actually, what I need is a ladder? Well, I'm actually not going to tell you that. The Bible is going to tell you that. This is what it says in Genesis 28. And Jacob dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, anyone who had half a sense about them in the ancient world is absolutely shocked and bewildered by this story. And they, could, they couldn't believe it. And the reason is because the ladder came down to, of all people, Jacob. <laughs> uh, uh, he, he, in this point in the story, Jacob, Jacob's on the run. He's, he, he's just cheated his brother um, out of his blessing. He, he, he's just robbed his brother. I mean, Jacob is a scoundrel. I mean, he, he's on the run for his life. He, he's just robbed his brother. He's a cheat. Um, and he, he's going to get a Bethel reality in his life. If he can have the presence of God, so can you. I mean, look at the story with Jacob. Jacob, Jacob, <laughs> Jacob's on the run. He isn't even looking for God. I mean, he isn't even offering the prayer we so often pray. Lord, if you will let the Seminoles win this game, I promise I will give you my life. Now, if you are a Seminole fan, please pray. They need it. We just lost some church members, by the way. But Jacob's not even praying that prayer. He's not even looking for the presence of God, but it enters his world because of this ladder. This ladder is sheer grace. It, it's all about what God does, and we receive his presence. But this ladder was pointing forward to the clearest sign that God's presence would be with you no matter what has happened in your life. It tells you that there in this passage that you'll notice this ladder, you'll notice the presence of God, you'll, you'll notice this ladder because you'll see the angels ascending and descending on it. That's, that's how you know the, notice the ladder. That's how, you, that's how you know it's a Bethel world is you'll see that. In the first century, there was a skeptic named Nathaniel. Uh, Nathaniel asked questions many of us ask, and he asked a common one of the day about Nazareth. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, it's, the, it's, it's in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing there. But Jesus invites us to see that heaven is closer than we could possibly think. Yeah, this is what he said. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels 
of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Friends, Jesus declares to all of us this morning that he is the ultimate ladder that comes out of heaven to us by sheer grace. Undeserved. He invades our world offering the presence of God even though like Jacob, we have barely been looking for it. But we have to see this for us to experience the 168 living that is to us by sheer grace, for us to experience a Bethel presence to our life, we have to see what it costs Jesus to bring it. That Jesus cried out and heaven was silent. He, he comes so we know that heaven is always with us. When he cried out on the cross, heaven was silent. On the cross, he experienced cosmic isolation for God for us so that you and I could be brought in the presence of God through him forever. Friends, don't you see that for us to have constant friendship with God, the very presence of God by sheer grace, though like Jacob, we weren't even looking for it, we weren't even praying for it, we've just carried on with our lives as if everything was okay, Jesus cried out from heaven, was silent. On the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus experienced our punishment, he experienced our condemnation, he experienced our refusal to recognize this as a Bethel moment so that we could know there is no doubt the availability of life with God is right here, right now, to you through him. Right here, right now, is not the middle of nowhere. It's not the other side of Pensacola or Ocala. Right here, right now, is a Bethel. Surely God is in this place, and I didn't even know it. So that we may know the presence of God is available to us by sheer grace throughout our work, rest, and play. That's our value. That there is a ladder out of heaven for you. His presence will always be with you because of the gospel wherever you go. Whatever job or calling is before you. Whatever relationships he has stewarded to you. God is ready to use you because you have his glory. You have his presence. It's Bethel wherever you go. Christianity is the only identity where you receive the verdict before your performance. It's the only worldview where salvation isn't earned through your white knuckle grip. 168 living has already been lived and accomplished by the only one who could actually do it. And his righteous life in your place means you will always have the presence of God every moment of every day available to you if you will simply just step into it. Right here, right now. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Regardless of how distant he may feel, regardless of how little we deserve it, regardless of all the areas of our life that are fundamentally out of alignment with his kingdom, he will never forsake you because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Whatever insecurity you have that God has done with you, whatever fear clings to you that God can no longer use you, whatever worry that God's presence won't go with you, look to the cross. Jesus gave his life to save you and redeem you, to make you his for all eternity so that you never have to believe those lies ever again. He is the ladder out of heaven, so you will have the question always before you of how does God feel about me? You never have to wonder that question because God's presence is available to you right here, moment by moment throughout your day. You don't have to question, is this the middle of nowhere or is this in fact Bethel? It's Bethel. Because of Jesus, you can receive the presence of God right here into the middle of your broken world. It looks like the middle of nowhere. It looks like nothing. It looks like absolutely nothing. But it's Bethel. 
you're invited to see that God is already at work in your job, in your family, in your singleness, in your friendships, at your school, when you're counseling a friend going through divorce, when you have to fire someone, when you're changing, changing, oh my goodness, even here, changing a really, really nasty diaper, it is Bethel. When you're caring for aging parents, when your body does not look like it used to, when you have finally come to grips that you are going bald. Why are you laughing? He's with you. He's with you. And he will never, ever forsake you because of Jesus. Surely God is here. I didn't know it. May we be gripped by the gospel and what Jesus has accomplished for us and begin to see Bethels all over our world and step into them and follow him because we have a ladder, friends. We have a ladder. Run to him and see what he can do in your life. Let's pray. For our gracious Father, we receive your good word to us again today. That in the gospel of what Jesus has done, we have the presence of God with us right now, though it is undeserved, though it is unmerited, though our performance would not bring it about. Jesus is the ultimate ladder who has stepped into our world to remind us of your sheer grace in the gospel. That we could follow you moment by moment throughout our day, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you are our constant friend and provider. Lord, this week, help us to see that in our lives. The places you're calling us, the invitations before us, that we could be your people, formed by the gospel, to live it out in our world. We do pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.